Good morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, 1450 on the AM dial, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. A delight to have you with us on this third day of January, and we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. It's Wednesday already, folks. Andrew and I were chatting off the air. It does feel like a Tuesday, doesn't it? But we've made it halfway through the week, more than half. So so there you go. That's what uh, those Monday holidays uh, will do. Shorten your work week. Uh, by the way, big story today, big lawsuit going on. A Florida woman uh, is taking on the Hershey Company, claiming it has tricked customers through misleading packaging on Reese's, or some people say Reese's, uh, seasonal-shaped cookies. Cynthia Kelly of Tampa, Florida, uh, is suing the chocolate giant for $5 million because she claims the packaging and the actual contents don't match. For example... The pumpkin-shaped chocolate does not have eyes and nose cutouts like the packaging suggests. And the football shape is like an egg, according to the lawsuit filed in Florida's Middle District Court. The lawsuit, uh, viewed by the New York Post, and I quote here, Hershey Labels for the products are materially materially misleading, and numerous consumers have been tricked and misled by the pictures on the product's packaging. Uh, This is a class action suit against Hershey Hershey, for uh, falsely representing several Reese's peanut butter products as containing explicitly carved out artistic designs when there are no such carvings in the actual products. We shall see how far this one goes. Will it go to the Supreme Court? This Hershey chocolate caper on these uh, Reese's peanut butter pumpkin products. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Some people, I guess, uh, it's true. Some people have no lives, right? And they've got to worry about the the face on a piece of Hershey's chocolate, uh, Reese's Pieces, uh, Reese's pumpkin products that, you know, you're going to digest in three seconds. Who cares about the face? But apparently, some do, especially Cynthia Kelly in Tampa, Florida. Wow. Hmm. All right. So that is the big lawsuit of the day. $5 million class action suit against Hershey. Uh, By the way, uh, Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis, who's been uh, AWOL in New Hampshire recently, 
and uh, former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, who has uh, two appearances in New Hampshire today, are set to appear at next week's Republican presidential debate on CNN, while former President Donald Trump participates in a Fox News town hall at the same time. Both events will be held next week, January 10th. That is one week from today, 9 p.m. in Des Moines, Iowa. Just five days, five days, folks, before the state's first-in-the-nation GOP voting contest. Not primary. They do the caucus. The caucuses in uh, Iowa. So it's different. It's different. The caucus has never made sense to me. Uh, I don't think anybody can actually explain it. Even those who have lived in Iowa for 80 years can't explain the caucuses. The uh, CNN debate to be moderated by Jake Tapper and Dana Bash will be the first to focus solely on the two candidates vying to become Trump's chief competition. The former president has been, of course, uh, leading by wide margins in polls of likely Republican voters. Biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who participated in previous debates, did not qualify for the CNN event. Candidates needed to achieve 10% support in at least three specific polls of likely Republican voters or caucus scores, at least one of them measuring voters just in Iowa. In a post on X, which we know is uh, formerly Twitter, on Tuesday, Ramaswamy predicted that the DeSantis-Haley debate would not be exactly Lincoln-Douglas. The DeSantis-Haley debate would be, in the words of Vivek Ramaswamy, the most boring in modern history, and said he would participate in a podcast hosted by Tim Pool instead. Uh, Trump did not participate in any of the earlier debates, saying that uh, he didn't want to lend credence to his uh, low-polling rivals. He has instead typically held competing events, including an interview with Tucker Carlson and traveling to Michigan to criticize President Joe Biden and push for, uh, and his push, Biden's push for electric cars during an auto workers strike. His town hall next Wednesday will air in the time slot normally held by one of his top media supporters, Sean Hannity. But Hannity will be preempted that night with Fox anchors Brett Baer and Martha McCallum instead moderating that session with Trump. So it's going to be Trump on Fox and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis on CNN. Take a guess, folks, as to who's going to get the bigger ratings. I think you know. Uh, DeSantis and Haley have both, both criticized Trump for not participating in the debates. With only three candidates qualifying, it's time for Donald Trump to show up, Haley said yesterday. As the debate stage continues to shrink, it's getting harder for Donald Trump to hide. Meanwhile, NBC in the uh, Des Moines Register 
said it would hold a series of uh, 30-minute interviews with DeSantis, Haley, and Ramaswamy that will be posted digitally on Wednesday. Trump and Christie declined the interview requests, according to NBC. Haley and DeSantis will also appear in back-to-back town hall events on the CNN this coming Thursday. So there you have it. That's the status right now. Our first-in-the-nation primary, where people actually go to the polls and vote, is coming up now in less than three weeks. Three weeks from yesterday, our first-in-the-nation New Hampshire primary. We still have it, folks. We still have it, despite the efforts by the Democratic Party to take it away from us. We still have it. And how about this? This is rather noteworthy. As many of you know, the current president of the United States is not even on the ballot. And there is, uh, despite their claims to the contrary, there is uh, lots of panic in the Democratic Party because uh, they're, they're nervous about who may come out on top in the state of New Hampshire as far as uh, Democrats are concerned. It probably won't be the uh, current inhabitant of the Oval Office. Uh, there's one uh, story about uh, Carolina Panthers owner uh, David Tepper. He was fined yesterday folks, by the NFL for what the league calls his unacceptable conduct during Sunday's 26-0 loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Tepper was caught on video throwing a drink in the direction of Jaguars fans from his open-air suite at Jacksonville's Everbank Stadium. The league said in a statement that all NFL personnel are expected to conduct themselves at all times in ways that respect our fans and favorably reflect on their team and the NFL. End quote. Tepper, in a statement, said he is passionate about his team but regrets his behavior. He said, I should have let NFL Stadium security handle any issues that arose I respect the NFL's code of conduct and accept the league's discipline for my behavior, which is really gonna, really gonna hurt him in the pocketbook, folks. Tepper is the second richest owner in the league with a net worth of 20.6 billion with a B dollars. So the fine, $300,000 fine, represents less than. 1% of 1% of his wealth. Think about that. $300,000 represents 1% of 1% of his wealth. It's like finding us, you know, like a dime. Or less, maybe a penny. We'll take a break. This show will continue, we do believe, after this break from our sponsors, Here on WKXL, we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. We are back. 
Kale and Company live here, live in living color on WKXL. NHTalkRadio.com. If there's anything you'd like to say, something you'd like to get off your chest, give us a call. 603-224-1450. 603-224-1450 is the number to call if you would like to join us. Joining us uh, about 8.35 this morning, Julie Farnham. Julie is the author of a book called Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. Uh, Julie, by the way, served as uh, the assistant and then acting director of intelligence for the U.S. Capitol Police uh, during that uh, January 6th uprising, if you will, uh, in Washington, D.C. So she shall be an intriguing guest right here on the program because she was there when it all played out on uh, January 6th of 2021. Front page today of the uh, Concord Monitor. Now, future attempts by Andy Sanborn to operate a casino in the state will be met with challenging regulatory hurdles after his gaming license was suspended last week by the New Hampshire Lottery Commission. Sam Bourne, a former state senator who owns and operates Concord Casino through his business Win 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 LLC, was ordered to shut down his gambling operation on January 1st as he faces a six-month uh, suspension of his gaming license. In addition, Sanborn was told to sell the business within six months or risk facing, facing a harsher consequence, which would be a two-year revocation of his license. Concord Casino must be sold to a Lottery Commission-approved buyer and undergo a licensing process similar to any new operator looking to receive a gaming license. But the ruling by independent hearing officer Michael King is not a lifetime ban. A potential appeal could further compli- uh, complicate the situation. King's decision left certain questions unanswered about a path back for Sanborn to uh, operate a casino uh, in the future. And, of course, there had been uh, plans for a larger uh, casino in, in Concord and an event center on Loudon Road, which he and his wife, State Representative Lori Sanborn, got approved by the Concord Planning Board. You remember that was approved a number of months ago now. And, uh, of course, that is certainly up in the air uh, at the moment. If a new casino is built, the one on uh, uh, pretty much the uh, the junction of uh, Loudon Road and Sheep Davis Road, Sanborn cannot just operate the casino once the suspension is lifted. He must undergo a suitability review by both the Department of Justice and the New Hampshire Lottery Commission, the same government entities that investigated Sanborn's use of COVID funds and found him unsuitable to be involved with 
charitable gaming. Sam Bourne applied for and received, if you don't know this story, uh, he applied and received uh, $844,000, $844,000 in COVID relief funds, which were intended for struggling small businesses. Casinos were explicitly excluded from receiving financial assistance. Sanborn managed to sidestep this restriction by masking the registered trade name Concord Casino on his application by utilizing the name Win 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 LLC instead and categorized the business activity as miscellaneous. According to a report by the Attorney General's Office and the Lottery Commission, his lawyers later argued that the company was a charity gaming consulting business and not not a casino. Now, according to the uh, nine-page ruling, the misrepresentations on the COVID application and the subsequent use of the proceeds for expenditures not allowed by that loan constitute conduct by the license that undermines the public confidence in charitable gaming. Sanborn faces uh, accusations of extravagantly spending the funds received from the loan on two Porsche or Porsche uh, race cars for $181,000 and $80,000 for a Ferrari on his wife. For his wife, additionally, he paid himself. He paid himself over one hundred eighty-three thousand dollars, disguised as rent, for his properties. His legal team argued that he had enough cash on hand and in other accounts to pay for the luxury cars with his own money, instead of using relief funds he received and put into his general operating account. But uh, King, who uh, issued this nine-page report, dismissed that argument, writing that there was a straight line from the receipt of the loan and the purchase of the automobiles. With the casino on Main Street and Concord closing on Monday, charities are left in uncertain positions. Typically, gaming facilities plan 30 to 60 days in advance to fill their calendars with charities on a rotating schedule to receive donations. But now... Charities or nonprofit organizations already on Concord Casino's schedule find themselves searching for alternative gaming facilities to secure a spot for donations. So there you go. That's part of the article in today's Concord Monitor. And if you want to read the whole thing, well, my suggestion it would be to either uh, go online or pick up a copy of the Concord Monitor. Uh, lots of good stuff in there today. And uh, it also tells you in, in the Concord Monitor today that uh, Concord residents with curbside trash and recycling collection can place their Christmas trees for disposal on their trash collection day through January 12th. So you still have over a week in Concord to uh, get rid of your Christmas trees. And uh, by the way, the Hotel Concord and In-Town Concord are excited to announce Concord Winterfest will be returning for its sixth consecutive year. Uh, you can enjoy ice carving demonstrations and meet some of New England's most talented ice carvers, 
on Friday, January 26th, followed by an ice carving competition and Concord Winterfest on January 27th and Sunday, January 28th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's an outdoor event, so uh, they warn you to be prepared for the elements. Weather permitting, there will be a free trolley service on Saturday to bring people back and forth to the Black Ice Hockey Tournament at uh, White Park. And hopefully there will be a Black Ice Pond Hockey Tournament outdoors this year if uh, the weather cooperates. Uh, if not, there is a black uh, a backup plan. There is a, a backup plan for the Black Ice Tournament. I can't tell you what it is, but I know from reliable sources that there is a backup plan, folks. So... Uh, there you have it. Kale and Company live right here. WKXL. NHTalkRadio.com coming up. We'll chat with Julie Farnham, author of Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. We'll take a break, and then we'll be back with our guest right here. WKXL. NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. And we are delighted to have Julie Farnham joining us. Good morning to you, Julie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it is uh, our pleasure. Julie is the author of Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And Julie served as the assistant and then acting director of intelligence for the U.S. Capitol Police during one of the most uh, tumultuous uh, periods in this country's history. During her time there, she oversaw the identification and vetting of nearly 20,000 threats against members of Congress. Julie, where did those threats come from? Many of them are posted on social media, but sometimes they are mailed to members of Congress. Sometimes they're left on voicemails, but um, the vast majority of them come from social media. Uh, I know after you were named Assistant Director of Intelligence uh, for the Capitol Police just uh, days before the 2020 election, uh, you warned leadership of the uh, upcoming insurrection, uh, sharing that uh, Congress itself is the target on the 6th. Why was your warning ignored? I think there were a few reasons. Um, One is a sense of complacency and also maybe even arrogance on the Capitol Police's part, because there are protests on the Capitol and on Capitol grounds every single day. Like, it's something that they deal with every day. So they were, you know, had this attitude of like, well, we've got this. We don't need help. We know how to handle protests. So that was one element. The other element is, is that my team that I oversaw Um, And as you mentioned, I had only been there about two months when January 6th happened. My team had a really awful reputation, and I was brought in, and I was told when I was brought in that I needed to completely revamp the team. They didn't produce quality work. They were very siloed. They didn't work um, and and speak with other members 
within the Capitol Police, but also members of um, other members of law enforcement or uh, the intelligence community. Now, when you said uh, you, uh, you know, warned uh, those in charge, uh, those the authorities, uh, capital, the authorities within Capitol Police or uh, congressional authorities as well? Uh, within Capitol Police. Mm-hmm. Um, so Capitol Police is part of something called the Capitol Police Board that is made up of the Capitol Police and then the Sergeant at Arms offices in both the House and the Senate and the architect of the Capitol. So those four are members of the Capitol Police Board. And so I did share it with my leadership at Capitol Police, who um, then shared it with the Sergeant at Arms offices, um, and uh, they none of them prepared adequately. Was there any thought that, uh, you know, the, the fact that you're a woman had had something to do with, uh, you know, the, 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 they, the, you know they, they ignored your, your suggestion? Do you think it was sexist? Um, I think there's some element of that. I think with women, especially women who are in um, high-ranking positions, you know, men start at a place of credibility. They are assumed to be credible. Women start as at a place of having no credibility. So they have to work twice as hard just to get to the man's starting line. And I think there was some of that. And I was new, too. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that them not knowing who I was and not knowing what I was capable of, even though I was, you know, very much telling them what they needed to know, uh, it, was, it was largely overlooked and ignored. I know it's a day you will never forget, uh, obviously, and, and and most of us will never forget. But you were you were right there. You were right there. What what was it like being uh, on the ground at the Capitol on January sixth? You know, at the time, it was just so busy. Um, I wasn't like in the Capitol building, but I was on the Capitol grounds, and so I was watching what was happening. And I was also listening to the police radio, and I could hear the chaos, and I could hear the the stress and the distress in the officers' voices. So that was very sad. I think reflecting on it now and being able to, like, process more what I what I went through and what I saw, you know, it's sad. It's, it's sad on many levels. I mean, it's sad in seeing my coworkers having to have gone through that. It's sad and disappointing knowing that in a lot of ways this probably could have been prevented. And then bigger picture just what it meant for the country and what it meant for our democracy. Like that was the first time where there was not a peaceful transfer of power between presidents. And that's, that's not good for our country. So um, in the aftermath of January 6th, what happened with the Capitol police? So the day after January 6th, the chief of police was forced to resign, which he did. Um, There were several other people who were either fired or resigned after that. Um, And it it really came down to, you know, looking at um, identifying those who perpetrated the the riot and the breach of the Capitol and prosecuting them. But then there were a lot of reviews and a lot of reports that came out after that um, to make improvements with the Capitol Police. The concern I have is that what really contributed to January 6th and allowing the Capitol Police to fail the way they did was a cultural issue. And the reports and the recommendations that came with the reports were, you know, very um, concrete things that they were recommending, like write a policy on this and get more equipment and do more training, things like that. But really what it comes down to is the culture. And the culture has issues with trust 
and with communication and with valuing employees. And until those issues are fixed, it's going to happen again or something something grievous is going to happen again. It's maybe not a riot, maybe not a breach of the Capitol, but something very grievous will. And, and you said uh, in your book that uh, Capitol Police intentionally misled uh, Congress uh, following January 6th. Tell us more about that. Sure. Yeah, there were a couple instances. Um, One was testimony that Chief Pittman, she was assistant chief on January 6th, and she was elevated to the acting chief of police after the chief of police was forced to resign. Um, She, they were, Capitol Police were asked how they prepared for January 6th, and she listed several items. But most of those items were implemented either before January 6th, unrelated to the the rally that was planned for that day, or there were things that were already in place um, that had nothing to do with January 6th. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, she said, oh, we moved my team, which was the Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division, IICD, uh, to a 24-7 schedule. We had been operating on a 24-7 schedule at least since October. So back in October, there was no January 6th rally planned at that point. Um, so there were things that were done well before January 6th or unrelated to January 6th that she was saying was evidence of Capitol Police being prepared for that day when it had nothing to do with it. Mm. Our guest is uh, Julie Farnham, and Julie is author of a book, uh, Domestic Darkness, uh, just out recently, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And uh, Julie has served as the assistant and then the acting director of intelligence for the Capitol Police uh, during that time. And what, what were you doing prior to that, prior to uh, working with Capitol Police? What was your, what was your background? So I worked for a little over 15 years in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I actually got my start in Boston. I'm from New England. Spent many summers up in Ossipee. Um, So, yeah, I did a little over 15 years in the Department of Homeland Security, um, three years in Boston, and then the rest of that time here in Washington, D.C. And I handled most recently... the, I oversaw the Intelligence Watch at USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. That was one branch that I oversaw. The other branch that I oversaw uh, did classified vetting of immigration cases that had national security issues. So I dealt a lot with like terrorist, um, drug, and human trafficking, espionage, those sorts of types of cases. Not domestic terrorism, but I got a crash course in that at yeah, the Capitol Police. For sure. Uh, did you mention Ossipi? I did. Oh, what what did you what, what did you say? I, I kind of missed it. Oh, so I I spent many many summers up there. Oh, okay. Um, over Big Dan and Little Dan, are those those are the lakes up there? Yeah. Yeah. But be- I know that area well. Beautiful area, no no doubt about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we'll ask you more. Can you stay with us uh, for for a few more minutes? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have to take a, a little break here, and uh, we'll delve more into uh, uh, the book. But uh, what what are you doing these days? I have my own company. Uh, I It's called Pandora's Intelligence. We do open source intelligence investigative work. We work with a lot of attorneys and private investigators. Now, uh, where, where are you based now? Are you in the, the Boston area? or uh, no, no, I'm in Arlington, Virginia ah, now, okay. so just outside of D.C., Okay. Are you from the, the Boston area? I am, yes. Yeah. I grew up in Stoneham, just north of Come Boston. Come on. 
Really? Yeah. And I'm yes. glad, and I'm glad you said Stoneham because that's how the natives say it. That's how <laughs> yes. the natives say it. Because I'm from Melrose. Are you really? I am. Oh, that's right, great. Right next door to Stoneham, not Stoneham. Yes. Stoneham. Yeah. Stoneham. Stoneham. Okay. Yeah. Now we got that straight. <laughs> Hang with us, Julie. We'll be right back. Uh, Julie Farnham is our guest again. The book, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And uh, we will be right back after these words. Kale and Company Live, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Our guest is Julie Farnham. Julia, native of Stoneham, Massachusetts, author of Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And Julie, uh, your book uh, examines specific groups that were uh, central to the events of January 6th, like the... Uh, Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, QAnon, and white supremacists, do they all have uh, the same ideology, or, or do they differ? No, they differ quite a bit. Um, you had, if you had to categorize them, you had, you know, the white supremacists and um, neo-Nazis, and of course they are you know, racist and they're anti-Semitic. Then you have QAnon, which is more conspiracy theories. Uh, you have militia groups, anti-government groups, which um, the Oath Keepers would fall into that category. And those are like the three main groups that you saw as far as extremist groups go on January 6th. And they're all quite different in what they believe. And it's interesting that they all kind of came together for a common cause. And their reasons for coming together may have differed, but at the end of the day, they all came to the Capitol to undermine our democracy and try to turn over the election results. Now, uh, in your book, you're, you're very candid about a relationship that you had with someone who turned out to have a connection to the Proud Boys. Do you think uh, he was just using you to, uh, to get information? I don't know. I mean, I've been asked that question, and, um, you know, it's kind of hurtful to think that he could have been using me to, to get information. Um, you know, he seemed genuine when I, when I was uh, with him, but... I don't know. I mean, it's possible, and certainly knowing what I know now, I don't think I would have made the same decisions, and I would not have started a relationship with them. Now, in, in your book, uh, you tell of a, a small group, six people within the Department of Defense, uh, that wrote an intelligence report that was given to uh, Lieutenant General Charles Flynn, the brother of President Trump's former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn. What did that report uh, contain, and what happened to it? So that report contained information about um, saying that right-wing extremists were going to um, potentially attack the Capitol and they were going to be armed. Much of what um, I said in my report to the Capitol Police leadership, so very similar. Um, and it also recommended that the military be postured in such a way or the National Guard be postured in such a way to prepare to respond if necessary. That report was dismissed. Um, 
the uh, General Flynn had said that he thought it needed to include more information about Antifa, even though Antifa was not the threat on that day. Um, and ultimately, you know, as we know, National Guard was not prepared, um, and they came in much later after the, the, the worst of it had already passed. Now, of course, there's going to be uh, another election coming up uh, in November of 2024, uh, 11 months from now. Uh, Are you concerned that there could be violence uh, surrounding that election? I am concerned because it looks like now it's largely going to be a matchup, a rematch between Biden and Trump. And those groups that were there on January 6th, they haven't gone away, um, with the exception of Oath Keepers. Keepers is kind of defunct now, but, you know, some of the other groups have really flourished, and white supremacy and anti-Semitism is flourishing here in the United States. So these groups still exist, and they are still a threat. So I do worry about violence. I don't think it'll be necessarily in the same form that we saw on January 6th. The Capitol Fleet know about that threat now, so I am sure that they will be prepared for that, um, for the next election or um, certification of the electoral vote. But um, I think there is a real threat of violence, particularly as it pertains to lone wolves and people targeting elected officials or candidates for for office. What are the lessons we can take away from January 6th that uh, might help uh, avoiding something like that in the future? Listen to Julie. She knows what she's doing. No, <laughs> um, I, I think really it, it looks... Look at the intelligence that is out there and pay attention to it and use that intelligence to inform operational plans. Because this was this was planned out in the open. It was not something that was, you know, done in secret, you know, dark rooms. It was planned out in the open on the internet. And not to discount my skills, but I really didn't need to be there to tell anyone at the Capitol Police or anyone anyone that, you know, something like this could potentially happen. And then I think we need to make sure that the people that we elect for office are not empowering these fringe, hateful groups, because that's what we see now. They've been given a platform to speak and to spread their hate, and hate never solves any problems. That is very true. I I did hear from a a reliable source that... uh, you're talking uh, about the, the possibility of a run for, for office uh, this year. Yes, I am running for local office here in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and I'm running as a, a moderate Democrat, which um, can be a tough sell sometimes here in Arlington. Arlington is um, very similar to like Cambridge, Massachusetts, very liberal. Um, but I think using common sense, and just being practical and listening to people, that's what we need more of in all, you know, from local office all the way up to the presidency. Well, Julie, it's a, a fascinating book. And uh, uh, again, the name of it is Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right wing extremism. Was that your first book? No, I wrote a book in 2005 about um, how immigration laws changed under the threat of terrorism. Ah, okay. So uh, is there another one uh, in your plans? Um, not right now. Maybe. Who knows what the future will, will hold. But I hope I don't have to experience something that is enough to write a book. <laughs> Next book hopefully is fiction. 
Well, maybe it'll be about your run for uh, political office. Uh, you're, you're, I know you're, you're running for a, a local seat now, but, uh, you know, it could, it could get to beyond that at some point, Julie, right? Yes, county uh, board, board first, and then yeah. <laughs> once I get through that, we'll see. The, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit for uh, Julie Farnham, and I'm, I'm so happy that she said Stoneham, you know? Really. <laughs> Because that that's not Stoneham, folks. I mean, everybody says you hear the people say Stoneham. They're not natives. They're they're not natives of that area if they say Stoneham. Stoneham, right, Julie? That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, Julie, you've been a great guest. I appreciate your time, and uh, and and best of luck. I, I I hope you succeed. I I know you will. You're a very positive person. So, uh, great having you on the show. And happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome, Julie Farnham. And uh, Stoneham. Now, now, Andrew, uh, wh- where are you from originally, Andrew? Hello, Andrew. Can you hear me? Oh, Andrew. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, yep. yeah. So I, um, I am originally from where? where oh, where? Okay. Yeah. Oh, just, just you're, you're very close uh, to your hometown. Mm-hmm. We're from where we sit right now. Yeah, from where we sit now. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, you've probably heard uh, that the, of Stoneham, Massachusetts, right? Um, yes, I've heard of Stoneham. Yeah. Um, and I actually, the first couple of years of my life, I actually lived in Dunstable, Mass. Oh, okay. Right over the border. Yep, yep. In That's Dunstable. where my grandparents were from. Right, right next to Nashua. Yep. And, uh, but, but it, it's always bugged me. You know, I, I grew up in Melrose, which is the next town to Stoneham. But since, you know, for, for many years now, uh, people say Stoneham. Mm-hmm. But when I grew up, it was Stoneham, and I, that's and, and Julie said Stoneham, and she's actually from Stoneham. Uh, so, folks, it's not Stoneham; it's Stoneham. I mean, as awkward as it may sound, Stoneham. Uh, you know, you, it just it, 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 it just that's it. I, I'm so happy. She made my day by saying Stoneham. Can you imagine? It doesn't take very much, Andrew. No, it doesn't. To make my day. A cup of uh, hot coffee you make <laughs> and Julie Farnham saying Stoneham. I'm good. Yeah, it's 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 an accomplished hump day. I'm good. My day has been made. <laughs> <laughs> I don't require very much. But uh, at any rate, uh, it, just a quick look at sports here before we have to wrap things up. Uh, Bruins were winners on Tuesday. I you know I'm getting all the days mixed up here. This is Wednesday. They won last night, Tuesday, in Columbus, Ohio, four to one. And a former University of New Hampshire star James Van Riemsdyk returned to the Boston lineup. He had a goal and two assists. And the Bruins will be off until tomorrow night. Now, when they take on the Pittsburgh Penguins at the TD Garden, Celtics played. I'll tell you what, they they played. The Oklahoma City Thunder last night, and folks, uh, they're not—they're <laughs> not the Oklahoma City Thunder they used to be. They are one of the top teams in the NBA right now. They have a lot of weapons uh, on that team, especially uh, Shea Gilgus Alexander. He could be the MVP of the NBA. Shea Gilgus Alexander, remember that name? He scored 36 points last night. Thunder beat the Celtics. 127 to 123. Kristaps Porzingis, 34 points, 10 rebounds. Jason Tatum, 30 points and 11 rebounds, plus eight assists for the Celtics, who will host the Utah Jazz on Friday night at the Garden. Our thanks again to Stoneham, Massachusetts native Julie Farnham, who 
who has uh, written a book about the January 6th insurrection called Domestic Darkness. Check it out, whether it be at a a bookstore near you or uh, on Amazon or however uh, you get your books these days. Thanks to Julie. Tomorrow, we will have some live in-studio music right here on WKXL. And we are looking forward to that. And I hope that you will be able to join us for uh, the show tomorrow between 8 and 9. If you can't, uh, tune in between 7 and 8 because we play it again here at night on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And remember, folks, always look on the bright side of life. Have a great Wednesday, everybody.